I'm Bob. I'm one of the elders here. Good morning. And it's my privilege this morning to share the passage from Psalm 145 that Joey's going to be preaching on. And as it is our tradition here, when we read God's word, we stand together. So would you please stand as I read Psalm 145, verses 1 through 9. Great is the Lord, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your words to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, hey, good morning. I'm Pastor Joey. This last week, if your family's like mine, you celebrated one of the greatest holidays of the year, that most blessed of holidays, one of my personal favorites, Reformation Day, where in celebration we dress up as ghouls and goblins or kitty cats or whatever, or in my daughter's case, a uh, rainbow unicorn princess troll, and you get to hold a bag and go door to door around your neighborhood in the same way that Martin Luther knocked on the door of that church. You get to knock on people's doors and, and get an indulgence from them. You know, you, you get candy from them that, that they indulge you with, and, and it all goes into the bag, and then after two hours of of labor, willingly, willing labor on the part of the children, they, they bring the bag of candy back home and they dump it in the middle of the living room floor and then are promptly sent to bed. Yeah, which means the candy is all there for us, right dads? Like you know what I'm talking about. Free reign over the candy. I've been telling Anna, my six-year-old, that um, she has to tithe on her candy, which means she gets to keep 10% of it. And the rest goes to me and to Jenna, because that's how a tithe works. Um, now, of course, I can get away with that with her, because she's very sweet and very accommodating. And if I tell her candy is not good for you, she, she believes me and, and understands that in the interest of her dental and glycemic health, I, out of the goodness of my heart, sacrificially, lovingly, am taking all of her candy and eating it and getting fat and probably going to die of a heart attack, because I love her so much. Now, when I was a kid, the, the discussions with my parents were not quite as accommodating as they are between my daughter and myself. She has more of her mom uh, in her. Um, I got into big debates with my parents because I did not understand what they meant when they said, candy is not good for you. You know, they say, candy is not good for you. It does not contribute to long-term health. I'm like, who says that's important? You know, I'm seven. Like, why is that the most important index of what matters? It's, it tastes good. Doesn't that make it good? It's a very good thing that I get to go collect. Doesn't that make it good? I desire it. Doesn't that make it good? 
There's even, you know, different kinds of good candy. You can, we rank the candy, of course, my brothers and I, and, and, and trade stuff out. Like, I'll give you two packets of, uh, of Skittles for one full-size Milky Way or something like that. Because there's different, different degrees of goodness when it comes to the candy you get to collect. Uh, Anna, we went to this one house where a lady gave her a brown bag full with 13 full-size bars in it. It was awesome. Thanks to the Greens for the hookup on that one. <laughs> Um, it was pretty great. The lady was kind of eccentric. She also had tequila shots for the adults, um, which I understand why. I didn't per personally partake at the moment, but I understood why, why that might be important if you still have two or three hours worth of walking your kids around. Anyway, that was not in my notes, so let's move on. Candy is good. You heard it here first, kids. Tell your parents. Pastor Joey says candy is good. You should eat as much of it as you want. Of course, if by good, we mean pleasing to the palate. Now, when we use the word good to describe God, we probably don't mean it in that way, pleasing to the palate. Nor do we really mean when we say God is good, nor do we mean that, well, God is necessarily desirable, or at least that's not the best meaning of the word when we say God is good. Uh, nor do we necessarily mean that God is a good thing that we should go try to get, like candy. Uh, we mean the word a little bit differently. Now, th this, this statement, this question, what do we mean when we say God is good? That's kind of the fundamental question that's going to fuel uh, the next four weeks of our exploration of Psalm 145. Uh, as we roll into Advent in December, we're taking one month uh, to just focus on this question. What do we mean when we say God is good? Do we mean that in the same way we mean other uses of the word good, like good dog, good boy, good job, good God, God is good? Do those all mean the same thing or something different? Is, is there a difference to the word when we say God is good? So for four weeks, we're going to talk about God's goodness. God is good. God always does good. We are called to be good like God is good. And that God works all things together for good. Now, those are the four main ideas we're going to explore over the next month. And we're going to explore all four of those ideas rooted in one text, rooted in Psalm 145. Psalm 145, it's on page 621 of the black Bible that's underneath the seat in front of you if you want to pull it out and follow along. Uh, psalm 145 is a praise psalm or song in praise of God for his goodness, his righteousness, his greatness. It's the last psalm that we have in our collection written by the great King David. Uh, and you can't really tell from its English translation, but he had given himself a literary challenge when he wrote this psalm. Each verse starts with uh, the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet all the way down through. It's an acrostic. Uh, but the main reason we're looking at Psalm 145, despite those interesting little tidbits of trivia, is that Psalm 145 is a catalog of God's goodness. It's reason after reason, justification after explanation of why God is good. Uh, he's good in what he's done. He's good in what he's promised to do. It's a catalog of God's goodness, uh, which gives us a guide and, and, and a platform for studying this one essential attribute of who God is. God is good. Now, if you're taking notes, that's the title and 
also the only point I have. God is good. The main point of my sermon, the only point of the sermon, God is good. And so this week, as we jump into and start exploring Psalm 145, we're going to look at just a a few verses, the first couple of verses. And and before we do, I just want to point out one fact right away. At the risk of stating the obvious, this is a psalm. It's a song. Uh, it's, a, it's a poem. It's, uh, it's meant to be sung. It's a, an emotional outpouring of praise in response to God's acts and God's character. Uh, it is not a philosophical treatise on the nature of God's moral perfection. Now, that is assumed in the psalm, so we're going to take some time to talk about that, bring out the assumptions so that this psalm resonates with us some more. But it's a song. It's, it's meant to be sung. It's meant to emotionally resonate with us. The psalm, as are all the songs in Scripture, are tuned to the keys of our hearts, not necessarily to our head. There's doctrinal content in them, to be sure, things we should explore and discuss and apply, but it's poetry. It's meant, it's meant to resonate with your hearts. And if our hearts don't resonate with it, or in the, the versions of these themes that we've sung even this morning, then our hearts need to be retuned which is what worship does. It retunes our hearts towards the praise of God. So we're going to spend some time in Psalm 145, especially the first three verses today, retuning our hearts to resonate uh, with the psalm of praise that David has written, the psalm of praise to God's goodness. Jump back into Psalm 145 with me, verses 1 through 3. King David writes, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name, forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now David uses that phrase forever and ever twice. It's hyperbolic language, a finite Human being in their uh, finite humanity cannot say, I will do something forever. It's, it's hyperbole. Now, it's, it's not the kind of hyperbole that means David is being untruthful, right? It's like when you tell your, your kid, shape up or I'm going to knock you into next Tuesday. That is hyperbole that is in a sense untruthful, but it also does something very important. It communicates a very deep emotion, which is what uh, David's use of hyperbolic language is doing here. It's communicating uh, the emotion that he's feeling as he's contemplating God's goodness, God's greatness. To express in some vague terms what his heart is feeling, he needs eternal-sounding language. He needs hyperbolic terms. Focus in on verse 3. As David is contemplating God's greatness, he uses that word, great, three times. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Or the translation you're holding might say unfathomable, a greatness which no one can fathom, or an inscrutable greatness. His greatness is beyond comprehension. Now, whenever superlative language is used, especially in a song, uh, we should ask ourselves if that superlative language, that language of greatness, of better than, is being used in uh, different ways. We we need to figure out what kind of way it's being used in, in other words. Is it it purely hyperbolic that David is saying God is great? Um, You know, so God's pretty good, but because I'm so 
moved right now, I'm going to say he's great, or, or does he mean that God is actually great, a different, maybe even different kind of greatness than when we refer to ourselves? If you think of the candy that I mentioned earlier, um, it's everywhere this season. It's all on sale right now, 50% off if you want to load up. Um, if a, if a mini-size Three Musketeers bar is good, then a fun-size Three Musketeers bar is better, right? We could say it's great in comparison. If a fun-sized bar is good, then a regular-sized bar is great. It's at least better by comparison. If a, if a regular-sized Three Musketeers bar is good, then a jumbo-sized Three Musketeers bar is amazing, that's right. And if a jumbo-sized Three Musketeers bar is good, then the Supermax Chocolardiac Arrest size is phenomenal. I mean, it's, you, you see how that works. There are degrees of greatness as you get more of the same thing. Right, a mini size is good, and then the, the fun size, and then jumbo, and then the supermax, or whatever they call the one that'll kill you. I don't know what they call it. Um, but as you, as you get more of the same thing, the greatness increases by degree. Now, that's different than if the greatness increases in kind, in the type of greatness that it is. As, as great, as good as a, a supermax Three Musketeers bar is... It can never compare to the Swedish Tobago Estate Milk Chocolate Bar made by the artisan chocolatier Francois Pralou, which won the Best in Show at the 2017 Finals of the International Chocolate Awards last month. I know that because I Googled it. To, what's the best chocolate bar in the world? I needed it for this illustration. Um, I have no idea where you would get one of these, but apparently it's the best in the world. That's, that's a difference in kind, not just in degree. See, it doesn't matter how good your Three Musketeers is, it is never going to win best in show at the International World Finals. It's just a totally different kind of greatness. There's some similarities, of course. They're both chocolate. Some of the process is the same. Some of the ingredients are the same. Or maybe. There's probably a lot more fake stuff in the Three Musketeers, but it doesn't matter because it tastes good. Um, but it's a difference in kind. So it, it's greater, not just in degree, but also in kind. It's a different kind of greatness. The same kind of analogy applies to God. When we talk about our greatness or our goodness or our moral goodness, uh, it's in effect like talking about a Three Musketeers bar. When you talk about God's, it's a totally different kind. Now, there's some similarities, of course, but it, God is not just greater than us by, in degree as if he's you know, a human being just bigger and more powerful. He's greater than us in kind. David, in verse 3, describes it as unsearchable greatness. Unsearchable, unfathomable, inscrutable, not able to be grasped cognitively greatness. God's greatness is so far beyond ours in, in both degree and kind that we could never find the end of his greatness. No matter how long we searched, no matter how hard we looked, we could never come to the end of our quest if our quest was to find where the ends of God's greatness is. Which is kind of mind-blowing. But this psalm at least begins to give us uh, vague outlines of God's greatness. Uh, like like hand-drawn roads uh, on a map. Or roads on a hand-drawn map. You know, it's like, it's kind of like this. It's giving us a rough idea of what God's greatness is like. Uh, or like, 
If you've ever been exploring a cave and you've come out of a tunnel into suddenly a large open room where you can't see the sides, the edges, you know you're in the midst of something vast, but you can't see the borders. That's what God's greatness is like, and that's what the psalm, in a sense, illuminates a little bit of it for us. God is great, David is saying in this psalm. We could ask ourselves, well, what is it about God that deserves the praise that has inspired David to write this song? What is it about God that moves David to commit to a continual and unceasing refrain of praise? What is it about God that makes him great? And of course, the answer is the rest of the psalm as David explores God's covenant faithfulness, his goodness in his relationship to a specific people, uh, to Israel. But David goes through, like I said, a catalog of God's goodness and talks about his sovereignty, his power, his care, his mightiness, his patience, his knowledge, his glory, his splendor, his immortality, his awesomeness, his fame. And we could probably spend a week on just each one of those and go for a year talking about what God is like, Uh, but we don't have time. And we're spending these four weeks talking about God's goodness. So we're going to focus on just God's goodness from this psalm. It comes up again and again as we read through it. Verse 7, David says, They, the, 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 the multiple generations, shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 13 says, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Verse 17 says the same thing, righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. And this psalm, as it it pulls in David's personal experience and the experience of the nation of Israel and future generations and all of creation, it describes and invites all of us to praise God for his goodness. That he is good. That everything he does is good. That as his covenant people, he calls us to be good as we reflect him. That he will bring everything to the fulfillment of his perfect goodness. David is saying in Psalm 145, God is good. Now, he's not saying when he says God is good... When we say God is good, he's not saying that God sometimes does things that are pleasing to us. Like when you say good dog because the dog happened to do what you wanted it to do anyway. That's that's a different kind of goodness. When when David is saying God is good, when we are reading this and, and, and God, you are great, you are abundant goodness, you are good to all of us. When we say God is good, we're not just saying that God does good things. We're saying that God is at core essentially good. Now, when I use the word essential, I'm not meaning that if you boil God down to just his basic part, you'll find goodness. I'm saying that goodness is essential. It's a necessary part of his character. And it's a question, it's an idea that theologians and philosophers have been debating for a couple thousand years. So in the 20 or so minutes I have left, I'm not going to be able to give you a full treatment of the question. But hopefully we can get just a big, broad overview Because when we say God is good, we start to ask ourselves, where where does goodness come from? How do I know God is good? What standard am I measuring him up against to find out that he is good? 
Some have thought that God is good. That statement means that God conforms his actions to a standard of moral excellence that is outside of himself. Uh, That there's a standard of goodness, of moral excellence that is over God, that God has to submit to. Of course, the problem with that perspective is then, like, there's something that's bigger than God. There's something God has to submit to. There's something that's over him. So the alternative has, has thought to, to be, well, I, I, I guess that means if God isn't submitting to goodness, then he must be uh, defining goodness by what he says or what he wills or what he tells us to do. Uh, so good is whatever God chooses to do, and then we call that good. So if God says love one another, then loving one another is good. It's what we should do because God said it. Then if you're like me, you start to wonder, well, what if God had said uh, hate your enemies? Would we call that good because God said to do it? And, and, and so it's like, okay, it, goodness is either this you know, standard over God that he has to submit to, or, or maybe it's just whatever he says, but in that case, how do I really know it's good it's, if it's just whatever he says is good? So neither of those perspectives seems to be very satisfactory, that God either submits to goodness or goodness just means, you know, be good means don't do what I wouldn't do. Uh, neither of those really, really work. Uh, But thankfully, there's a third way to think about what we mean when we say God is good. And it's a bit technical, so this is your nerd alert warning for the morning. Um, Warning for the morning, that rhymes. I just realized that. Um, Sorry. Um, Where was I? Nerd alert. This is a bit technical. When we say God is good, when I say that, what I mean is that God possesses maximal moral excellence. See, I told you, nerd alert. Uh, God possesses maximal moral excellence. In other words, God is holy and completely good. He never does anything wrong. He never does evil. He never sins. But I don't just mean that God you know, could do evil or could do wrong or could sin, but he has chosen not to. I mean more than that. I, I, by saying maximally morally excellent, I'm saying that God is necessarily good. He cannot sin. God cannot do evil. He cannot ever do wrong. That's what we mean when we say God is good. Not just that he always chooses to do good, but that he can't not choose to do good. He is always doing what is good. He cannot sin. He cannot do wrong. And, and I know some of you are tweaking a little bit like, well, does that mean there's things that God can't do? And does that limit his power? And short answer is yes, there's things God can't do. No, it doesn't limit his power. Let's talk about that more if you're really interested. But by way of analogy, uh, you can think of it this way. God is good in the same way that water is wet. You don't have water without wetness. Wetness is essential. It's intrinsic to the nature of water. Some of you guys are over there like, you could freeze it, and then it would be ice, and then it would be hard and not wet. I'm like, well, yes, but then it's not water. It's ice. So stick with me here. You cannot have liquid dihydrous monoxide or whatever it's called. You cannot have liquid water that is not wet, right? Wetness is intrinsic and essential to the nature of water. Goodness is intrinsic and essential to the nature of God. You cannot have God without complete maximal goodness. God is, David tells us in this psalm, great. 
not just better than us in degree. So his moral goodness is not just better than ours. You know, he's better at being good than us. It's his goodness is different from ours in kind. He possesses maximal moral excellence. He is morally perfect, cannot ever sin or do wrong. God is good. Maximally morally perfect. God is good. Now, why does this matter? Does, does it really matter at all? Now, of course, because I'm the one up here talking about this, I'm going to say yes. I have a microphone, you have to listen to me. Uh, yes, of course this is important. Uh, but it's not just important because uh, this is what we decided to talk about today. Uh, it's important because God's goodness is true. It's who he is. And when we come face to face with God's goodness, it provokes a reaction in us. It's a reaction of either fear or comfort, depending on which side of his goodness you're on. In his uh, classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis takes the first five chapters of the book to make the case for the existence of God based on this sense that we all share that there is objective moral right and wrong. He says that, that objective moral right and wrong uh, would tend to make us think that there is a moral law giver. There's some sort of at least moral law that is pressing down on us like, like a weight. And he spends four chapters making this argument and then draws the conclusion from it in his fifth chapter, which he titles, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. This moral law that we feel pressing down on us, telling us that there is right and there is wrong, should make us uneasy. Here's what he says. He says, We conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct. In fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. But the trouble is that one part of us is on our own side, wanting him to excuse and make an exception for our own failure to live up to that standard. But the other part of us is on his side, knowing that if he ever were to make an exception, uh, that if at bottom he does not really and unalterably detest that sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. The problem is, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do, Lewis says. He calls it a terrible fix that we're in, because we're making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. We cannot do without it, and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He says some people talk as, as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness uh, would be fun. He says they need to think again. They're just playing at religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way, Lewis says. He's saying that God's goodness, God's moral perfection, which we feel as, uh, almost as a law pressing down on us, telling us that there is right and there is wrong, uh, to be on the right side of that law is the thing we most desire and yet the thing we have most alienated. And if 
all we had of revelation of God was this sense of a moral law, uh, we wouldn't be able to praise him the way David does in Psalm 145. If all we had as revelation of God was this sense that there is right and wrong and we are on the wrong side of it, I don't know how it would, it would lead us to say, say things like uh, the fame of your abundant goodness. Sure, we may say God is powerful. We may say God is all-knowing, but, but to praise him for his goodness, that's what's threatening us the most. Now, Paul had, or not Paul, excuse me, uh, David had seen more revelation from God than just this sense of a moral law. He had seen God's words, God's, uh, God's word to him, God's choosing of his covenant people, Israel. And we have seen even more of God's goodness than David had. St. Paul describes that revelation we have of God's goodness in Jesus. He describes it in a letter to a young church planner named Titus uh, this way. He says, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, on the wrong side of God's goodness. But then he says, he says, but, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, not by any goodness we possess ourselves, but according to his own mercy. It's easy to think of God's goodness as this uh, out there, bigger than this world concept that has little bearing on our own lives, at least on our day-to-day lives. Uh, And I know that putting it in terms like maximal moral excellence doesn't really do all that much to help make it feel like it's at home, like it has on-the-ground reality. Uh, So to to help us bring this home a little bit, we're going to do a little thought experiment. Try to make God's goodness real to us Uh, by thinking of our own sense of moral perfection, our own sense of moral excellence. Are you happy with all of the choices that you've made in your life? Can you you fully justify all of your actions, all of those actions that have moral weight to them? Can, Can you justify them in your mind? And not just, you know, here in the light of day, uh, surrounded by friends, but in those quiet moments when it's after dark and it's late at night and you're alone with your thoughts and you're feeling just melancholy enough to be honest with yourself. How's your sense of moral perfection? Does it fall short of the glory of God? Because who among us has not condemned someone else for the very same behavior that we have then participated in the very next day? Uh, Who among ourselves has not judged somebody for an unjust action they have done and then uh, justified it as necessary when it's us doing the same thing? We cannot live up to our own application of this moral law we feel pressing down on us. We, We can't live up to our own understanding of what God's goodness calls us to. But, Paul says, God showed up. And Paul draws a straight line from God's goodness through his faithful love to his work 
on our behalf on the cross. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Jesus Christ was God's own son, God himself, and he sacrificed himself on a cross willingly on our behalf so that all of the cosmic and unapproachable and unfathomable goodness of God could be ours by free gift. All of his goodness became ours and all of our wretchedness became his. All of our self-righteousness, all of our rebellion, all of our inability to live up to our own moral standard became his. He, tra- he, he traded, he transferred his unfathomable goodness for our unsearchable depravity on the cross so that you and I could find ourselves once again on the right side of God's goodness. And he didn't come down and offer us this goodness uh, contingently, meaning, you know, here, I'll I'll give you my goodness, but here's what you got to do to measure up to it. He said, look, not because of any works of righteousness on our part, not by anything we did out of our own goodness, only through his mercy, only through his loving kindness, only through his grace, God is giving us his own goodness in Jesus. Now, different... Different philosophies, different thinkers, different theologians have defined the the maximum goodness, the supreme goodness in different ways. Um, most tangibly, you know, it's, uh, the greatest goodness is health or it's, or it's wealth or it's, it's uh, some form of prosperity or ease or comfort or, um, or like in the movie, you know, Incredibles, uh, when, when the guy says, where's my suit? This is about the greater good. And she says, I'm your wife. I'm the greatest good you're ever going to get. Right? There are, we define the, the greatest good, the supreme good, the sumum bonum, the Greeks called it. We define it as something. And, and what I'm trying to get across here by saying God is is good is that God is the supreme good. He is the only good that matters. He is the good that is the source of all other goods. Anything else we look at and say that is good, that is true, that is beautiful, that is pleasing, that is desirable, it is only those things to the extent that it participates in God's own goodness. But that's not just an out there thing like a a form out there in another world that we can't ever interact with. We can only just sort of feel it pressing on us. If God is good and he gave us Jesus, then we can have a relationship with the supreme good of the entire universe. We can have a relationship with goodness itself. Goodness is not a thing or a concept or a form or an idea. It's a person. It's God as revealed to us in Jesus. Which, man, if that doesn't resonate with your heart and cause you to sing, to to rejoice, to praise God's goodness for what he's done for you and what he's done for us in Christ, I, I don't know what will. Most of the time we look at God and we say, God, yeah, I know you're good, but you haven't done these things for me, so how, how can I really tell? And, and it's almost like God is saying, look, I gave you my only son, what greater evidence of my goodness do you need? Well, God, I mean, that was nice, yeah. But I could really use a car that doesn't break down all the time. Or I could really use healing from this disease or this cancer. I, I, I could use the restoration of this relationship. Good things. And yet God is good. 
We have to remind ourselves of this on a regular basis because when we look at the world around us, myself, just as much as anyone else, when I look at the world around me or look at the things happening in my own life, I say, God, really? Are you really good? I've got to remind myself from the psalms, from the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning, from from the preaching from his word that he is good, even when it doesn't make sense to me. He will never do wrong. He can never do wrong. He can never do evil. He can't sin. God is good. Great is the Lord, David says, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We praise him for his great goodness. One theologian I read as I was getting ready for this week commented on God's goodness. This really resonated with me, so I wanted to share it with you. He says, he says, the goodness of God would seem to be among the highest of God's qualities. For although we may respect a God who knows all things, and even fear a God who can do all things, presumably if we are to admire and love and praise God, it must be Because he is good. Not just powerful, so we cower in fear before him. Not just all-knowing, so that we submit ourselves to his wisdom, but good. And so we feel the embrace of his love. God is good. Father, you have shown us your goodness. God, you've shown us your goodness uh, in and through Christ. But you didn't start there, Lord. You, you started by sh- showing us your goodness just by creating this world for us to inhabit. And then creating us, creating us creatures so that you could share with us the love that already existed eternally between you, the Father, and, and God, you, the Son, and you, the Spirit, in your eternal triune relationship. And then, God, you showed us your goodness in choosing a people and committing yourself to them in a covenant staying faithful to them even when they weren't faithful to you. And you have ultimately and finally and supremely showed us your goodness in sending your one and only son to die on our behalf to trade his goodness for our depravity. God, you are good. Let the words that we sing and read and hear be a reminder to us that you are good. We believe this, we claim this truth through the sacrificial death of your own son on our behalf. In his name we pray, amen.